Hello and welcome to another episode of our podcast from the Blue Earth Summit, a movement and community driving positive action for our natural world. In this series, we'll bring you some of the highlight talks and conversations from our first summit in Bristol in October 2021. In this episode, Plastic Pirates, a voyage of exploration around the UK. The UK coastline is a thing of beauty. As described by Joe Morley in this talk, it's our playground, although you wouldn't exactly think that by the looks of some of it. We're increasingly concerned about where our plastic goes and the impact it has on the environment. Joe Morley is head of campaigns at the environmental campaigning organisation City to Sea. Alongside marine biologist Stephanie Lavelle, Joe knows what we need to do in order to change, starting with plastic. Through their analysis of over 40 beaches, approximately 6,500 items of plastic were found. And that's not the full story. There's other forms of debris as well, such as glass and fishing gear, and it's clear that this needs to be contained. However, it's a tall task. Influence of tides, waste management and policies are all contributing factors. And unfortunately, Joe and Steph can't be there to hold our hand through every step of the way. But to gain a greater insight into how coastlines are changing, sit back and join them on this sobering experience. Today, I am here to talk to you about probably our biggest adventure yet. We spent uh, three months on this beautiful ship, the Pelican of London, uh, researching plastic pollution. It was a project um, that was kind of started by an organization called Darwin 200. And they were due to do a two-year round-the-world voyage, taking 200 of the world's leading uh, young scientists to follow in Darwin's footsteps um, and uh, study um, and recreate some of his experiments to see how the world had been impacted by climate change and other environmental issues. But along came the pandemic. So unfortunately, they weren't able to do the global voyage which was brilliant news for us because it meant they uh, did it around the UK instead and invited us to come along and research plastics, which after we had spent 18 months behind our desks, working away incredibly hard trying to tackle this issue, to be able to have the opportunity to get back out there um, and to actually see the the problem firsthand and to really experience it was something that we jumped at. But we're not scientists. Um, We work with some amazing scientists and we really wanted to make the most of this opportunity So we brought in the experts, which is where Steph came along. Hi, so yeah, good afternoon. My name's Stephanie Lavelle. Um, I'm a marine biologist and plastics researcher with the University of Southampton. And I'm also the project director of a charity called Sea Sanctuaries Trust. And we have a huge focus on researching the abundances and distributions of plastic globally, as well as policy and yeah, different strategies across various industries to help ultimately reduce our footprint um, and help drive us towards a more circular economy. Um, so yeah, I was very kindly invited by Joe and Stacey to see to come and lead the plastic survey around the UK. And yeah, before I knew it, within just a few weeks, I was with an amazing team of young scientists who were about the same age as Darwin when he left on the Beagle um, on his five-year journey around the world, where apparently he never got over being seasick. Um, And that was certainly a a new experience for some of our young scientists as well, and for all of us. As a researcher, I've never researched on a tall ship. Um, So this was quite the vessel. She was 47 metres long, including the bowsprit, Um, The Pelican of London, a very similar size to the Beagle that Charles Darwin travelled on. And yeah, we had just a crazy experience of 
like learning how to sail and how to um, yeah, navigate by compass. So just after a day and a half's worth of uh, sail training, we were yeah, at the helm outside, exposed to all the elements, 24 hours a day in our three watch team systems, um, where, yeah, we would be driving the ship uh, using that big compass that you see in front um, of the helm there. Um, again, not so good if you uh, feel seasick at all, trying to, trying to keep your uh, focus on the compass when it was a bit choppy was definitely testing. We were, you know, really excited to be able to get this training from Seize Your Future, who actually uh, we chartered the vessel from, um, and they're a sail training organization that works with underprivileged and overprivileged disadvantaged teenagers. Um, so this was, yeah, a really great project to bring together some scientists and some cadets and, yeah, a real mix of people to help us with our plastic surveys. So yeah, this was my watch group. As Steph said, we were kind of constantly um, throughout the voyage. You're, it's a 24-hour job, so sailing a tall ship is a lot of work. There's manning the sails, there's um, someone on galley duty, and constantly someone on watch. Um, so this was yeah our watch group, who you get to know very well over the time that you're there. Um, and there were other scientists as well working on different um, research projects. So we also had the opportunity to study um, seabirds um, and also be collecting some really important data on cetaceans as well. So it was really, really an adventure in, in its own right, even without the plastics research project, which mm-hmm. we're going to tell you a little bit Absolutely. more about now. Yeah, so now you know a little bit more about our life on board, let's get to yeah, what we were doing with the plastics research. So just to give you a little bit of an overview, our main aim was to look at the abundances and distributions of plastics so that we can try and identify the sources um, from all around the coast of the UK. And what was really interesting about this opportunity was that we were able to visit some really remote regions. We, you know, throughout the three months, visited all of the outer isles. A lot of these areas are marine protected areas, marine conservation zones, special areas of conservation uh, and fisheries um, conservation areas as well uh, under fisheries law. So we do have a lot of protection in the UK and a lot of MPAs and yeah, a lot of a lot of areas of interest. But we were really looking to see if plastic had any boundaries for these areas. So we had the opportunity to compare these outer regions with more busy tourist areas and ports. And we also were able to utilize our dive team that we had on board to take sediment samples from uh, the benthos because that's the ultimate sink for plastics, essentially. And it's a relatively newer area of research, but what studies are currently showing is that we're finding about twice the amount of uh, microplastic fragments in the sediments as we're finding in the surface waters because it's ultimately sinking there and causing huge impacts to our benthos environments which are you know really crucial for our whole ocean cycles and nutrient cycles. So we had this sort of three-stage approach. We had our beach surveys, which were designed to look at marine litter on beaches. And we had our microplastic surveys, looking at the sediment samples uh, from the benthos habitats that we visited. And then we also conducted surveys in all the ports and marinas that we visited to understand the waste management processes that either were or were not in place. 
we actually applied two different methods because a huge issue with coastal monitoring for marine litter is that people don't apply the same method and there's a real lack of, of consistency in methods. So we thought we'd be quite clever and apply two different methods. Um, one that is a very, very common one that's been applied for like 10 years is called the 100-meter method, which looks at the strand line where you would expect to see a lot of plastic accumulating in that you know, really obvious bit on the beach that you see, lots of seaweed and lots of litter. A more recent method that's being applied is to do vertical transects from the water's edge right up into two meters into the back of the beach. Um, and you would do three replicates of that to give you a more representative understanding of what's actually going on across the whole beach and not just the strand line. And by applying that method, it also makes the data more easy to compare to areas that aren't beaches, so for rivers, for example, um, using these vertical transects um, are really useful. And so, yeah, this also gave us a really nice side aspect to the project to be able to compare these two methods. And we actually found that they are very comparable. Um, we're finding about the same ranking of, it of items between the two methods, but we were finding about twice as much of the items in the strand line, which we would expect. Thanks, Steph. And the other area that we looked at is um, to really get an understanding, obviously, the beach topography, the influence of the tides um, on what we were finding plays a really big part, and also what's going on at that beach. So we wanted to know, uh, were there any developments, were there any cafes that could be contributing to us finding an increase in single-use plastic, for example? Um, and also, what was there in terms of waste management? Did the beaches we were serving have bins? Were there community groups that were regularly uh, cleaning the beaches, um, because all of this would obviously skew the data. Um, so we, we did a huge amount of kind of background research about every beach that we surveyed as well, which was really, really interesting. And actually, sometimes we would be surveying a beach whilst there was a community cleanup going on, which gave us the opportunity to actually have a really good chat with people in those communities and understand the, the problems that they were having uh, and where there were trends um, in, in what they were finding as well. To have a look at the route that we actually took just before we delve into the details of the results, um, it was an incredible voyage. I mean, how many miles was it in total? Uh, just under 3,000 miles, I think. Amazing. So yeah, I know uh, on leg one, which I was part of, we did about 1,000 miles starting from Folkestone all the way up to Glasgow. Um, and it wasn't the easiest ride to start with. The first two weeks, after just a day and a half of sail training, we were hit by force nine storm after force nine storm, literally hurricane level. Um, and it was yeah, very insightful to even hear from the permanent crew that were on board that this is, even from their perspective, absolutely climate change. It's so out of the ordinary to have that many storms at that level, back to back in May in the UK. Um, and it really, yeah, it gave me personally an insight into a huge impact this is having on seafarers. You know, 90% of all of our goods are, are transported by ships. Um, and the, the risk that they are now going to be taking with the increase in climate change and extreme weather to be on board and, and do their jobs is, yeah, it's actually very scary to think about having, uh, yeah, sort of gone through some of the extreme weather like that firsthand. 
But eventually, we uh, got to the Scilly Isles, and the sun broke, and it stayed with us for the most of our trip. Um, as one of our amazing volunteers, Hannah, um, on an uninhabited island that we surveyed on the Scillies, and it just had phenomenal amounts of fishing gear. You know, a lot of it looked like it was washing up from the Atlantic. Huge, huge pieces. The biggest rope I think I've ever seen in my life was embedded in, in some of the grass there. Um, so yeah, it, it was one of the most beautiful places I've ever been in the UK, but also very shocking at the same time um, in some of the more remote regions. And then from there, we got to travel up into my current hometown of Bristol and actually go up the channel under the bridge. It was amazing to see Bristol from this perspective, and I get goosebumps thinking about it now. It was just really incredible to come and yeah, celebrate with City to see our adventure here, and then we made it all the way around Wales and up to Glasgow, um, my actual hometown, that's where I've got a bit of a funny accent. So yeah, it was really personally a, a, a huge privilege for me to be part of this experience. Um, the team we then picked up for the second leg uh, from Glasgow, they had what we call the dream part of the voyage. <laughs> so they then uh, went and spent five weeks sailing around the inner and outer Hebrides. Um, they had incredible weather. It looked like this pretty much every day, uh, much to Steph's dismay. <laughs> uh, and me watching with dread, thinking there's no way the weather can possibly hold until I get on the ship in five weeks. Um, so yeah, they, they, they got to visit some incredibly remote locations um, and as Steph said you know this is what made this research project so unique is we were surveying um, beaches and places that weren't getting cleaned that people weren't visiting that you know we knew that the impact wasn't from uh, land-based sources we knew that any any plastics we were finding there had been um, impacted by the tides and, and were, were coming from the sea so it gave us some really unique data. Yeah, I think the one thing I wasn't jealous on the second leg was that they did have to spend five days going all the way out to Rockall, which is an incredibly interesting and surprisingly uh, busy history for a lump of rock that's nearly 200 miles off the coast of Scotland. Um, but yeah, they, they went out and visited Rockall, which I believe is now under argument over fisheries territory between Ireland and Scotland at the moment is the, the latest sort of political debate about this uh, interesting piece of rock. But yeah, then they did come back to the Hebrides and I mean, who would think that's Scotland? Like, I mean, I don't know how, if we've got any Scots in the room, but they had like three to four weeks of endless sunshine in Scotland. <laughs> it is climate change at its finest. So yeah, not bitter about that at all. <laughs> <laughs> so I joined um, the voyage for the third and final leg. I got on in Sky um, and we were heading up through Orkney to Shetland, right around the top of the UK and then heading down the East Coast. We weren't quite so lucky with the weather, but where we were incredibly lucky was with the wildlife. And you can just see in the top corner there, uh, was a minke whale. Um, and then the next picture, we've got dolphins who were just constantly riding, um, riding the bow. When you're in a sailing ship and you don't have the sound of the engine, we just seem to constantly attract so much beautiful, beautiful wildlife who, you know, we were incredibly privileged to be able to observe um, and collect some really important data on as well. And we were insanely lucky to also get to see the elusive orca, which was my hope that would, um, would happen. As we were sailing in, there was a pod of four orcas who were just making their way out. 
Um, after we had left the beautiful, beautiful um, Shetland and Orkney Isles, we then um, headed down the East Coast, where we weren't quite so lucky. We spent about uh, eight days in the North Sea. We were due to um, visit the Farne Isles, but that actually didn't happen at all, and we battled a headwind um, and had to zigzag our way across the North Sea, trying to find any winds, um, because sailing, <laughs> you are a little bit more at the mercy of, um, of the weather. But it was an incredible experience and, and being able to understand how difficult it is to navigate under sail um, and using charts. The North Sea is just full of oil rigs um, and wind farms, um, but we did eventually make it down the East Coast and after a, um, a very tropical evening spent moored just outside of South End, we were able to sail our way triumphantly down the Thames where they lifted uh, Tower Bridge for us um, and we sailed home, which was um, for me probably one of the, the best experiences experiences of the whole trip. We're getting home. <laughs> yeah, getting home. It actually was. We got through um, two, uh, we got through the, the, store, the ship's store of seasickness tablets twice in the North Sea. <laughs> so we were all very happy to get to London. <laughs> uh, so now you know a little bit um, more about where we went, let's have a very brief look at the marine litter surveys that we did on the beaches. So a very top-line overview, we, we surveyed 47 beaches and we did over 200 transects between the horizontal and vertical transects. Um, we were counting every piece of litter on those transects and we're also doing subsamples of size as well, so we know what kind of sizes of plastics we're dealing with. And we find over 6,500 items of plastic. And as Joe even said, in several instances, there were beach cleans going on while we were doing our surveys, but there wasn't a single beach that we didn't find plastic. Um, you know, on average, we're finding nearly an item every meter squared of, you know, of all of these beaches, or, you know, nearly half of which are supposed to be areas of, of special concern or special protection. Um, so it's really shown us that plastic has absolutely no boundaries. Um, what we found more of anything was plastic fragments. So about 45% of the items that we catalogued were plastic fragments, um, mainly broken down from larger plastic items. So we call these secondary microplastics, but these are of the larger section of, of plastic fragments. So they're not quite categorized as microplastics uh, scientifically. But yeah, this really shows you that the volume is just breaking down into smaller bits. And... Yeah, in the Hebrides, there were some seriously affected beaches. One in particular was just covered in polystyrene from possibly a particular incident, or it could also be with local aquaculture and fisheries pressures that polystyrene is often associated with as well. We found about 24% of um, what we've currently cast as other um, marine litter, but this does include clothes. We find a lot of plastic crates, but we wouldn't necessarily cast them as single use. So for uh, this instance, they are classified in other, along with clothing as well. And we find a lot of clothing. Um, we know the fashion industry is a, a huge culprit for plastic pollution. Definitely find that on our shores. Um, and as well as a lot of metal, aluminium, a lot of glass as well. Um, glass is a bit of an interesting one because it tends to get overlooked on a lot of beach cleans because when it softens uh, it can look quite nice actually and uh, look like pebbles and yeah people often overlook picking up glass so we did find a lot of, of uh, sea glass as it's quite nicely called and and fishing gear absolutely 
even I was so shocked at how much fishing gear we found on this trip, and that's my special area of interest. It was about 22% on average over a whole trip, but on Joe's mm. leg three, it was over 60% fishing gear that they found up there. And even on my leg around the south coast, out to the Scillies and up to Scotland, it was about... It, nearly a third of fishing gear that we found from, from our surveys. Um, I mean, it's the most detrimental to marine life and it is a serious problem on our coastlines. And then we have our single-use plastics. These were about 10% of the marine litter items that we found, but, you know, it's very much associated with the breakdown into smaller fragments and things we can't ID. But the most things we found from single-use plastic items were caps and lids, plastic bottles, things like tampons when we're near flush sewage pipes. And, and yeah, it, uh, caps, lids and bottles were certainly the predominant problem, um, as well as a lot of food wrappers. Um, PPE was probably uh, unexpectedly low, and we definitely found some masks and gloves, but uh, not in the sort of numbers that yeah. we're seeing like outside of the shops where we're using them and dropping them all the time. Um, and I think on reflection, people aren't using them on the beach, you know, it's Mm. socially distanced environment um, and they've just not been in circulation that long so I mean if I was not that I'm a betting person but if I was I uh, would expect to see a lot more masks and gloves mm. and things washing up san sanitizer bottles mm. washing up on our shores over the next few years so it'll be very interesting to keep an eye on that. Yeah, and just to add um, to what Steph was saying, the 10% that we found is a lot lower than you find in terms of global data sets, which tend to be around half the plastic or marine litter that we find on our beaches is single use. The reason it was so much lower is because we were in such remote locations and there was a real difference between um, the, the locations. I know, Steph, you found a lot more single use plastic when you're on the south coast. Um, and the only kind of city beach I visited was in Edinburgh at Portobello Beach. Um, and it was just such a shock after being in remote um, island locations where we were finding fishing gear to suddenly be finding, I think we found 300 cigarette butts on one beach and then we started finding all of the wet wipes and everything that we associate with, with us humans and our disposable um, throwaway lifestyle. It was just there, you know, as soon as I arrived near a city. So it was really interesting to see that. And the other thing that was particularly poignant um, for me was um, really seeing the scale of the salmon farming industry. It's something I've known about for a long time. I haven't eaten salmon for, for a few years because of it, but I'd never actually seen it firsthand. And every single lot that we went to was just huge scale salmon farming. Um, and we, you know, we often anchored up at night by these salmon farms, being able to really feel it and see the scale. We then were able to see the direct impact of this on the beaches that we were serving. So you can see uh, some of the nets here are exactly the same nets that are used around the, the top of the salmon farms. So this is, you know, um, marine pollution uh, fishing gear that is not coming in from the currents. It's not, not washing in from the fishing industry in, uh, in the North Sea. It, you know, it, it has to be coming from these salmon farms. And um, so, you know, Steph's doing some really important work on this um, and we'll be looking to collaborate with other organisations to find out what what some of the solutions are and what we can do next um, to, to tackle this massive problem. 
Um, and as we touched on, you know, we were incredibly, incredibly privileged to, to be able to see up close um, and, and ourselves just the iconic wildlife, incredible, incredible wildlife that we have here in the UK. Puffins I'd always wanted to see. Um, another... I didn't get to see a puffin. <laughs> I know, I didn't I didn't so sad. I'm still to see a puffin. <laughs> but the other, um, the other seabird that I particularly fell in love with was the gannet. I'd never really given gannets a second thought um, but actually we spent whenever we weren't uh, ashore so we weren't doing our beach surveys whenever we were under sail or traveling between locations we were studying and, and collecting data on the seabirds and I completely fell in love with these beautiful beautiful birds that live in uh, huge colonies out in these um remote rocky locations there's nothing around them and <laughs> they stink <laughs> that is one thing I can tell you you know when you are down uh, downwind from a gannet colony um, but they were absolutely beautiful um, and unfortunately we were able to see the direct impact on these colonies that are living you know hundreds of miles in some instances away from humans you know they, they should be able to live um, without the, the impact of us but we were we were finding their nets were filled with fishing, uh, fishing rope and obviously they were getting entangled um, and they're feeding as well so ingesting smaller pieces of plastic which they then pass on to their young so it was also very very sobering to see why we're campaigning on this important issue why there's still so much that needs to be done and the impact it's having just completely out of sight you know this isn't on the, the beach that you go to on a Saturday this is you know where these birds live um, and they're really under threat where do we go from here? Um, I've heard a lot of good uh, conversations today around this very point. I mean, my particular focus and interest is around plastic litter, particularly fishing gear, especially after what we found this summer. Um, and I, I think the kind of solutions overlap here between, you know, we need to and are engaging with the industries themselves, so aquaculture industries, fisheries industries, but also very importantly, the policy actors as well. And I think there needs to be such an effort between businesses that are wanted, wanting to do the right thing and, and helping we all need to, as individuals, businesses and organizations, help shape the policy and standards that we need moving forward for all businesses and organizations and individuals to follow. And to kind of end on a, on a, a lighter positive note, I'd love to share uh, just very briefly, um, one of the heroes that we met on our, our expedition around the UK was Joff Hicks. We met him in the, in the Isles of Scilly and he very kindly took some of the, the marine litter that we were collecting and surveying from the beach and he had I don't know if you can read his sign there he says do not take any item from this area it all has use and he collect he lives on the beach and he collects trash and he works with older local artisanal fishermen to learn how to make these beautiful handcrafted lobster pots that are used with materials that he can source within a stone's throw from his house. And he's really trying to find the balance between these older methods and more commercially feasible lobster pots to try and find what is the solution for commercial lobster fishing. But he as an individual is doing something incredible and showing us all what one person can do. Mm -hmm. And he's trying to find a balance between the older ways we used to do things and our more modern methods. And he's going out in the most sustainable way I've seen anyone catch a lobster. He goes out on his rowboat or, or with his sail and he uses these biodegradable pots and he just does that with his family and shares his story. And it was very, very inspiring to meet him. Yeah, I think for me that 
that was probably one of the most memorable parts of the trip um, was meeting people. These were an incredible couple that we met um, up in Orkney who just very casually every day they're, they're out and they clean their, the beach where they live, um, picking up plastic. They've been contacting the council. They've been trying to get infrastructure put in. They've, been, um, they've set up a community group to raise awareness of it. And across Orkney, they're trying to put things in place to, um, A, reduce the amount of plastic that's being produced but also um, raise awareness of the problems um, and, and try and put bins in as well so that um, when people are out beach cleaning, there's a, an infrastructure there to collect that waste and make sure it doesn't just get left there. So actually getting to speak to people firsthand and realise the power that we have as individuals, you know, that was one couple, but we met people on pretty much every single beach in every single town. And it just reminds us the difference that we can make as communities and as individuals. So that was very, very inspiring um, to get out there. And actually, especially after 18 months of us all being at home to meet real people um, and to see the difference that they're actually having as well was, was incredibly inspiring. And just to leave on that positive note, one of the themes of this event is to protect our playgrounds. Um, and one thing I really took away was how stunning the UK is. You know, this is our playground. Um, we've all had to spend a lot more time in it over the last uh, year and a half. Um, and it's really brought home just what a diverse ecosystem we have, how much incredible wildlife we have, and the threats that are still facing them. Um, as a campaigning organisation at City to Sea, we've worked really hard through the pandemic. We know that the issue of single-use plastic has fallen off the agenda for many businesses where um, safety has become a priority. So we're going to continue working to get the issue back out there, um, working on practical solutions, because we know that there are solutions to so many of these problems, and we as individuals can all make a difference as well. So yeah, please do find out more about our work, about our campaigns, and find out how you can take action and how you can help as well. Thank you all for listening. Thank you. Thank you. We hope that conversation's inspired you and given you some proper, actionable insight. Please look out for the next episode. And if you haven't signed up for the film versions, please visit the Blue Earth website at blueearthsummit.com. Earth Summit is happening from the 11th to the 13th of October 2022 in the great city of Bristol. We believe in the power of the outdoors to improve our health and further establish purpose-led business. Register your interest at blueearthsummit.com.